Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on the Wars of the Diodohoi with John McTavish. Hello, everyone. Today we have joining us John McTavish, a historian and PhD student at Cornell University. John is a specialist in the late classical and early Hellenistic periods, focusing on the wars of the Diadohoi, the chronological challenges of the period, and the developments of Hellenistic kingship, imperialism, and the associated military campaigns. He also has an upcoming paper for publication in the Phoenix Classics Journal, entitled A New Chronology for Seleucus Nicator's Wars, from 311 to 308 BC. As always, glad to have you here on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Thrilled to be here. So, John, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm sure we don't need much of a reason to understand why you find the early Hellenistic period so interesting, but what led you to focusing on it during your education? So it was always a dream of mine to study ancient history at university uh, since I was a kid. But my intention was actually to focus on Egyptology from quite early on, thanks to a particularly influential teacher of mine way back in high school. Unfortunately, uh, Egyptology and the study of the ancient Near East, uh, it, it doesn't get a lot of attention at Australian universities. In fact, very few cater to it at all. And the institution where I ended up beginning my academic journey the University of Queensland, which is, for the record, a wonderful place to study and work, it had completely cut Egyptology only a couple of years prior to my arrival. So I ended up studying Greek and Roman history for a few years. I took a course on Alexander at one point, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And when it came to my honours thesis, the fourth year of a bachelor degree where one writes their first major research project, I ended up pitching a paper loosely based around the intersection between Greeks and natives in the armed forces of Ptolemaic Egypt. If I'm honest, it was really just an excuse to use the Hellenistic period as a setting to explore a non-Greco-Roman culture. And fortunately, with the benefit of hindsight, this project was emphatically rejected. And my then supervisor, uh, Dr. Luke Rasmonti, suggested I do some work on the kingship of Demetrius Polyorchetes instead. To this day, I don't actually know why he pushed me in that direction. He was a classical Athenian scholar himself. But needless to say, I was instantly hooked on the whirlwind of charisma and insanity that is the procedure, and made up my mind before even completing my honours thesis that I wanted to continue on to do my master's on Seleucus Nicator, whom I became very fond of because of his sort of narrative role as a looming menace in our often fragmentary literary record. I then completed my master's under the supervision of Dr. Amelia Brown and Dr. Andrew Collins before recently moving to New York to do a PhD in Hellenistic history with Professor Barry Strauss as my committee chair. Since then, my focus has broadened somewhat to encompass sort of some of the larger themes that permeate both the Hellenistic world and the ancient Near East, but I inevitably always come back to the age of the Diadochi. When we talk about the life of Alexander the Great, it's unfortunate that very little, if any, accounts written during his lifetime have actually survived. However, we can be fortunate enough to say that we have very detailed works by the likes of Arian, Diodorus, Plutarch, Quintus Curtius, and the other various miscellaneous authors, most of that covering from Alexander's accession to the throne in 336 to his death in 323, a period of about 13 years. With the Wars of the Diodohoi, a 42-year period that begins with Alexander's death in 323 to the death of Seleucus I in 281, 
the clarity and volume of our sources drastically declines. What kind of sources can we rely on for this period, whether in regards to the traditional narratives of Greco-Roman authors or from more unorthodox sources and methods? How much of a challenge does it prove to be when it comes to reconstructing the chronology for the early Hellenistic age due to this scarcity? So it's really important to keep in mind here that ancient writers were not bound to the same rules that modern historians sort of hold themselves to today. Uh, they would often use their judgment, their, the past to exert judgment on, on their own presence. They would preference anecdotal evidence over more authoritative contemporary accounts. And they'd regularly shape their own accounts to make their points sound more profound, kind of reaching across generations. In the case of the Wars of the Diadochi, there are no surviving contemporary narrative sources. Every single piece of literature we have dates from either the dying days of the Roman Republic, usually the first century BCE, or from the Roman Empire itself. So the, these sources are being removed at a bare minimum of over 200 years. The most important source for Diadoc scholars is Diodorus Siculus's Universalist Library of History, the Bibliotheca. Unfortunately, Diodorus's narrative is only good up until about 301 BCE. It cuts off at the beginning of Book 21, at the advent of the Ipsus campaign. Even so, factoring in his importance, Diodorus is very problematic for us. He is a secondary source, writing centuries after the events he purports to describe. He abbreviates extensive material, whatever he's drawing his narrative from, with only partial success. And he's often rather prone to somewhat inelegantly shoving in his own opinions of fate and its role in historical causation. Diodorus does appear to largely follow the narrative of a source that is now lost to us, the history of Hieronymus of Cardia, who was a very long-lived contemporary and general who fought under and alongside Antigonus I, Demetrius I, and even Antigonus II, which would certainly explain the nature of Diodorus's focus around first Eumenes and then later the Antigonids. There were other histories written which have not survived or are fragmentary uh, by authors like uh, Juris of Samos, uh, and the ways in which these lost narratives have impacted the work of scholars like Diodorus is often unclear to us, and sometimes we're left speculating. The only surviving narrative account which covers the entirety of the Diadoc period is the epitome of the Philippic history of Pompeius Trogus, uh, composed by Justin, which is a far more abbreviated account and can be dated to sometime in the early to mid-Roman Empire. I've seen estimates ranging from 200 to 400 AD. Um, Justin, however, he, he only selected material that he found particularly interesting, which makes his source even more problematic than Diodorus is with his universalist perspective. There are numerous other literary sources which Hellenistic historians can draw upon. Uh, you've got sources like Quintus Curtius Rufus, Arian, as well as a number of biographies dating from the Roman era, like uh, Cornelius Nepos's uh, Eumenes and Phocion. There's the famous parallel lives of Plutarch, most famously kind of Eumenes, Demetrius, and Pyrrhus, but also another Phocion and one on Demosthenes. Plutarch becomes very, very important for the history of the Diadochi after the Battle of Ipsus in 301 because of Diodorus sort of tapering off. And he's a favourite source of mine, a, a very entertaining read that I highly recommend. 
we can also add to this a very large number of inscriptions from across the Hellenistic world, especially from Athens, but there are also a lot concentrated in Asia Minor, so Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Uh, there is a brief account of the Seleucid Empire up until the war with Rome, written by Appian of Alexandria. There's the stratagems of Polyanus, which is a great sort of short read for military fans, uh, the work of Strabo, the work of Pausanias. We have brief encyclopedia entries like the Suda, the fragments from a medieval codex known as the Heidelberg Epitome. And mo most importantly to me, we have fragmentary cuneiform evidence in the form of tablets from Babylonia, which is of particular interest to those looking into the East and which gives us a unique look into non-Greek perspectives, which is exceedingly rare. And there are also other various quotes from historians, like lost historians that are uh, now lost to us in existing historical works. So long story short, there is or was a lot of material, but so much of what is extant is fragmentary or problematic, sometimes both. Diodorus Siculus must by necessity remain our central source here, despite the criticism he has often attracted in the past, and he has served as sort of a scholarly punching bag at times. If you're looking to read the ancient sources that underpin Hellenistic history, start with Diodorus and work from there. In chronological terms, as you would expect, the ruinous historiography of this period also has a significant impact on our understanding of its chronology. And there are serious chronological issues faced by all scholars who study the Diodoc period in its entirety, but especially the years from 322 to 312, which are the focus of a long-standing debate between two systems coined the high and low chronological systems. These problems to begin with are caused by the lack of any systematic chronology, or at least a recognizable one, in Justin, Plutarch, or the fragmentary histories uh, such as Arian, but above all by the oftentimes confused chronology in Diodorus Siculus's history of this period, where he is taking different sources, cutting them together, and not always doing it correctly. So there are currently three different chronologies for the period from 322 through 312. There is the High Chronology, which goes back to Belloc and was championed by Brian Bosworth of Conquest and Empire fame in the 90s. There's the Low Chronology, which dates many major events a year later than the High Chronology and has been defended most recently, about six years or so ago, by Edwin Anson. And there is the Mixed Chronology, made most famous by Tom Boyd, who sadly is, is no longer writing in academia, which adopts the low chronology from 323 through 320, but a high chronology for events from 317 through 312. Now, under these systems, a number of major events are dated quite differently. An example would be that the high chronology labels Perdiccas's death as being in 321, the low chronology has it occurring in the summer of 320, and the mixed chronology has it in the spring of 320. Now, I'm a proponent of the low chronology system, which I think makes the most sense and has the most evidence in its favour, uh, but this is still very much an active debate for which there, there is no end in sight, and I, I don't think there ever will be. And I must note that even beyond 312, uh, from the campaigns of Seleucus in the east and, and in India, right up until the Battle of Choropodium in 281, the chronology of events remains a big problem for Diodoc historians. Even before the death of Alexander, his empire had problems that needed to be ironed out, 
and after his demise, it just seemed to be exacerbated to the point of nearly unraveling before the body was even cold. In your estimation, why did the Empire fall apart so quickly? Was there any particular contributing factor that you believe to have been a major issue, or perhaps any symptoms that are not often brought up in the discussion? This is a, a question that scholars have kind of squabbled over for centuries, I think. As you yourself said, even before Alexander's death, the Macedonian Empire was already a less than perfect entity. It had been created at astonishing speed. And compare this to the Achaemenid Persian Empire, for example, which took about 75 years to reach its greatest extent, maybe a little less. Um, but Alexander, he created his empire in effectively a single decade. So this is a big part of the reason why Alexander and his commanders ended up leaning so heavily on pre-existing Persian institutions and infrastructure because Alexander was never really interested in consolidation. He just wanted to move forward, always forward. Even during his reign, with all the power at his disposal, we still see native revolts. We see dis mass dissatisfaction among Greek settlers, which you can, you know, eventually goes on, uh, you know, many, many decades later to create the independent kingdoms of Bactria. We see squabbles among the Macedonian military and political elite, both at home and abroad. So the sheer size of the empire here is one of, if not its greatest enemies. Alexander also had the obvious misfortune of dying very young, without an established heir or a concrete uh, succession plan which in an autocratic realm centered around one-man rule was always going to be incredibly problematic. While it's pretty easy to point these and numerous other factors as the principal source of blame to put the pressure on them, to, to me the single most important issue is the nature of the Macedonian state itself, even before the death of Alexander. So rather than looking at the circumstances at the time of the conqueror's passing, look back a little. Because historically, Macedon's actually kind of a bit of a mess. Philip II came to the throne in 359, in the midst of massive domestic and foreign strife. He inherited a state in the throes of utter chaos. In the 40 years prior to Philip, there were more than 12 kings on the Macedonian throne, not including regents. And Philip himself was a regent who usurped another ruling king, Amintas IV. Kings were constantly assassinated, royals and aristocrats plotted against one another. The nation was very vulnerable to attack from north, west, east. It had no strong military. The Greeks weren't exactly fond of the Macedonians. So Philip's success was in creating a Macedonian state that was sort of intrinsically tied to the Argead monarchy which was in a very real sense a sacred institution. Kings were often worshipped after their death or at least given sacrifices and offerings. He then further reinforced the, like the pre-existing military aristocracy with the creation of the companions of the Hittiroi, but he also lifted up the peasants into a, into a cohesive military body, which was eventually able to exert significant influence and sort of served as a de facto assembly. But even when Alexander came to the throne, following Philip's also untimely death, it was not certain that he was ever going to be king to begin with. It was the intervention of a senior military figure, the elderly General Antipater, and the support of the army that came with that, that ensured Alexander's place on the throne. But even then, with all that support, 
he still felt required to purge many prominent nobles and rivals, anybody who could potentially be a threat. And over the course of his reign, you gradually see Alexander pushing out these Philip-era officials and replacing them with the companions of the Hittiroi who had sort of grown up alongside Alexander. So there's this long-running tradition of political instability present in Macedon, plastered over by Philip II's reforms, but which still lurks in the background and is effectively, you could say, exacerbated by the empire's immense size, the speed by which it was conquered, the fact that satraps functioned as sort of de facto monarchs to begin with, Alexander's early death, and above all, of course, the lack of a capable adult heir. Linking to the point you just made, by the last decade of the 4th century, the successors had effectively given up the pretense that they were anything but kings over Spear One land. Obviously, they emulated Alexander the Great to a considerable extent, but what precipitated the emergence of so many would-be kings, especially considering that the model of Macedonian rulership had been linked directly to the Argead house? Why did they openly disregard the fact that there were two Argead males on the Babylonian throne, even if it was nominal? The answer here, I think, lies in large part in the difference between the reigns of Philip II and Alexander. So Philip had effectively created, as you say, a Macedonian nation which was tied to the Argead monarchy, to the institution of kingship. Alexander did not care about that. His actions were always about Alexander, not about his homeland. He was doing everything for himself. The successors, unfortunately for the Argead dynasty, were more clearly cut from the mould of Alexander and not of Philip. And interestingly, of course, even uh, Antigonus, who is a general, a pre-existing general of Philip, clearly goes uh, in the model of Alexander and not of Philip. They, they cared about their own personal domains, not about Macedonia. And in the greater context, in, in the greater scheme of things, Macedonia had only been fully united under the Argeids in, in a sort of stable government for three decades or so. And all of the successors, being former generals, had been away from home for a decade, most of them never see the land of their birth again. And so when we take into account that Alexander died without a clear, an, an emphasis on viable heir, one able to actually step in, do what was expected and take his place immediately, one who could command the respect of both the infantry, okay, the old Macedonian peasantry, and the companions, the, along with them the traditional Macedonian military elite, uh, and given that Alexander died on the other side of the world from the Macedonian heartland, and noting that the Macedonian Empire was very personal in nature rather than national, and what I mean by that is that it was in a very real sense the empire of Alexander and not the empire of Macedon. I think it's understandable uh, to some degree that his generals did not try to side with their homeland, they went with their own personal self-interests because in large part, that's the way things had already been running for the last decade. If there had been a viable heir, things may have turned out differently. But from the beginning, the two Argian males put in place were always under the control of somebody else. There was always another successor pulling the strings, meaning that the Temenids effectively ceased to function as an independent entity the moment Alexander died. 
in their roles as satraps, the Diadochi were already kings in all but name. They were ruling over autonomous provinces, roughly analogous in size to modern-day nation-states, with absolute political and military authority. So the transition from this to kingship, once the Argians were out of the picture, as was probably inevitable, certainly with Cassander being involved, was, was, I think, a natural one. And we should finally keep in mind that it was done over a period of nearly 20 years. So that there was some tact and strategy involved in how the successors approached the, the idea of kingship in the wake of Alexander's death. Now, given that the bulk of the fighting occurred outside of Macedonian soil, it's important to talk about the perspective of the subject peoples caught in the crossfire. Iranians, Bactrians, Aramaic speakers, Anatolians, and so on and so forth. As a teaser for an upcoming episode to my listeners, we will spend time talking about the survival of Persian and Iranian institutions during the early Hellenistic age, but I believe this can serve as an excellent primer. What were the responses of the various indigenous peoples to all of this chaos, if they were recorded at all? So this is a really genuinely interesting question, um, and it touches upon arguably the most important issue of the entire Hellenistic period which is how did the Greeks and the various native peoples of Asia and Egypt, how did these groups interact with one another? There's a lot that could be said here, uh, particularly on matters of syncretism and Hellenization. But in terms of the early Hellenistic period specifically, we don't have a lot of information on how the indigenous inhabitants of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms reacted to the chaos of these early years. On one hand, uh, the success of Seleucus in the, in the east, for example, and even the short-lived local prominence of lesser-known diadochs like Bucestus, the one-time satrap of Persis and a renowned Persophile, their success had a lot to do with the relationship these Macedonians had with the local indigenous elite. Seleucus is once again the, the easiest to highlight. He had a Iranian wife of noble descent, a Pame, who must have represented potent political capital in the East. And he clearly paid a great deal of attention to the pre-existing indigenous institutions of political and religious import, which were present in Babylon, who evidently repaid him with genuine loyalty and were a huge part of his success. In Egypt, Ptolemy was enormously successful in dealing with the native populace through the already established religious and political elite, simultaneously presenting himself to Greeks and Macedonians as a legitimate king in the tradition of Alexander, while seamlessly slotting into this ancient Egyptian paradigm of pharaonic kingship. At this time, there were none of the native revolts that would eventually become so ruinous for the Ptolemies towards the end of the 2nd century BCE. And you can look up the situations surrounding Raphia, the Battle of Raphia, if anyone's interested in this. But to Egyptians of the late 4th and early 3rd centuries, in many cases it would have been business as usual. Egypt was quite insulated from a lot of the chaos that, that ravaged the Hellenistic world. And both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, as your upcoming episode will no doubt touch upon, clearly worked with and built upon long-lasting indigenous institutions. In military terms, Seleucus was by far the most prolific in his incorporation of Persian troops into his armed forces. By the time of Ipsus, his army already had over 100 scythe chariots, his famous 500 war elephants. It also featured large numbers of mounted archers among his cavalry, 
And these are not traditional Macedonian units, um, which already goes to show the, the incredible influence that Eastern troops are having in these early days on the warfare of this period. They are fighting as part of a Macedonian organized force under Macedonian leadership, and the Diadochi are successfully levying native troops from the old Persian satrapies to fight under their banner. On the other hand, sources like the Diadoc Chronicle, column four of BCHP3 is quite famous here to be precise, tell us of weeping and mourning in the land, land being Babylonia, during the somewhat nebulous war fought between Seleucus and the Antigonids, where first Demetrius, and then possibly slash probably his father Antigonus, raised the Babylonian countryside in a sort of scorched earth campaign, whether to punish the populace for lack of loyalty or to simply bait Seleucus into open battle is not quite clear to us. So it's important to keep in mind that indigenous peoples weren't always passive observers during these conflicts. They were often affected, sometimes in horrific fashion, by these wars that are raging constantly around them for decades. The difficulty here for us as scholars is in ascertaining the impact on native peoples when our evidence often gives them so little voice. Greek scholars weren't interested in what the average Iranian, or in, in all due fairness, the average anybody, had to say about wars fought between kings, that the great men around whom ancient written history quite literally revolves. And when we do have native sources, particularly in the Near East, they are similarly representative only of a very narrow and often long-running tradition, which is the case with the cuneiform evidence I cited earlier. These are not tablets written down by peasants talking about what's happening to the Babylonian countryside. This is the elite. And for these natives, you know, it must have been a time of great upheaval. After two centuries of relatively stable Achaemenid rule, all of a sudden, this huge Macedonian military juggernaut has rushed through Asia, created the largest empire the world had ever seen at the time, brought with them a new language, new customs, and often new political leadership. They had begun creating new settlements and cities. They brought new populations in. They moved existing populations around. I mean, Seleucus moved the population of Babylon to his own city of Seleucia, for example, and they were his biggest supporters. So it's, it's simply staggering, the scope of it all. And the sheer number of people involved, when we take a macro level perspective, the, the wars of the successors really did have a massive, massive impact on the socio-political landscape of both the Mediterranean, Western Asia, and Central Asia, as far as, far east as the Indus. There are many players in the wars of the Diodohoi, with famous examples like Ptolemy, Pyrrhus of Epirus, Seleucus, and Eumenes of Cardia. Is there a particular successor or figure that you believe deserves more attention, or dramatically affected the political, social, cultural landscape of the period in ways that people might not be aware? So this is, this is really tricky, and I, I think everybody ends up championing, like being the champion for their own favorite figure here, but I would highlight two men. Uh, Cassander and Lysimachus as being particularly deserving of more attention. And this might sound like an odd selection, particularly to people who are already familiar with the overarching narrative. Um, 
Lysimachus in particular, he appears a great deal. He's present, of course, at both Ipsus and right at the end of the, the final climactic battle of Alexander's funeral games, uh, Choropodeum in 281. But there's, there's more going on there than appears at first glance. So the dynasties of both Cassander and Lysimachus, they never really take off. Cassander dies in the winter of 298, 297, and his kingdom lasts only a few years before the infighting and, frankly, breathtaking incompetence of his sons uh, led to the realm being carved up by Pyrrhus and Demetrius. Uh, Lysimachus conversely executed his son and, and heir, Agathocles, himself already an accomplished war leader, in the winter of 283-282. Why exactly? We're not sure. Um, and his kingdom was already in the stages of falling apart as a result before the elephant king, Seleucus, sort of crushed him in Asia Minor. What unites these two figures is their characterization in our literary sources. Both are effectively the victims of a concerted character assassination, derived at least in part, in all likelihood, from contemporary propaganda put into circulation by their rivals. Cassander, rather infamously, murdered the last remnants of the Argia dynasty, women and children included, and he was absolutely reviled for it by ancient historians, even though the reality is that his fellow successors were probably very grateful for these killings. But while he's always characterised as a truly sort of loathsome figure, he's actually a really interesting monarch. When you compare him to his fellows, he wasn't a great military commander. He, he never won any great victories. Whenever he came up against his fellow Diadochs, mainly Demetrius, he was never able to earn the victory that would have made his name. Cassander doesn't even turn up at the Battle of Ipsus to fight Demetrius and Antigonus alongside his own allies. He sends his brother instead, losing around 8,000 men to a storm. So he appears to lack the fundamental military requirements that in large part define Hellenistic kingship. But he endured, and as a politician and a ruler, Cassander was actually incredibly savvy and competent. And the way in which he defines himself in political and iconographical terms, linking his dynasty to Philip II through Thessaloniki, is really fascinating. And it has a massive impact on Macedon's structure and history going forward. Lysimachus, conversely, was already a giant figure in military terms during this era. He had been one of Alexander's closest friends. And like I said, he lives right until the very end. But breathtakingly poor dynastic management and the rapid intervention of Seleucus ensures that his legacy dies with him on the uh, aptly named Field of Crows. He's characterised as a weak old man manipulated by the wiles of a beautiful and adulterous femme fatale, a younger woman. But he's nevertheless the same commander who led the way at Ipsus and whose image at the time was defined largely by his strength, his power, his proximity to Alexander, um, both in personal and physical terms and as a commander. So these are two figures that I'd, I'd really encourage people to, to look at more critically particularly in their literary appearances, uh, in, like in the ancient evidence. And for this, you can use websites like atlas.org. They compile a large list of sources in chronological order that may be helpful for those unfamiliar with some of the lesser known and fragmentary material. 
Unfortunately, there are no biographies I can recommend for either Lysimachus or Cassander. I think there are some written in Italian, uh, but I haven't actually read them myself. But both Cassander and Lysimachus, they, they definitely deserve to be thought of in terms that reflect their contemporary importance, rather than looking at things from the macro sort of 300-year level, where they appear insignificant simply because, unlike the Antigonids, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids, they never successfully get their dynasties off the ground. Speaking to your point on Cassander, there actually is a book on Cassander called Antipater's Dynasty, which is published by Pen and Sword. I have not read it yet, so I cannot attest to the quality, but they're usually pretty solid. Special shout out to Atlas.org, by the way. It has been a godsend for researching the show, so I encourage you all to check it out. It's, it's great whether you're a student, uh, an enthusiast, or a professor. It's, a, it's, it's really tremendous. Now, the Diadohoi in particular have been receiving greater attention over the last few years, from both academics and the general public. No thanks to books like James Rom's Ghost on the Throne or Robin Waterfield's Dividing the Spoils. Is there any publication or work you would recommend in regards to your work, The Wars of the Diadohoi, or the Hellenistic period in general? There are two books off the top of my head that I'd really recommend to your listeners. For anyone, anyone at all interested in the early Hellenistic period and the Diadochi, there's one book which I think stands head and shoulders above all others in its role as an introduction and summary to and of the 40 years or so after the death of Alexander. Uh, it, it's titled Alexander's Heirs, The Age of the Successes. It's written by Professor Edward M. Atson. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's published, it was published in 2014. Um, Ed is the best at what he does. And reading that book will give you a comprehensive overview of everything from the historical narrative to the sources and issues faced by Diadoc scholars. It's not too dense, it's, it's an easy read, and I'd as soon recommend it to an academic as I would to a friend. As an introduction to the politics and warfare of the late 4th and early 3rd centuries BCE, nothing else comes close. Um, the second book I'd recommend, I, I don't think it's actually out yet. It was definitely meant to be out by now, but the pandemic seems intent on ruining every aspect of my life. Uh, Professor Pat Wheatley and Dr. Charlotte Dunn are publishing the first ever English biography of Demetrius Poliorcetes, titled, rather appropriately, Demetrius the Besieger. Pat is one of Brian Bosworth's old students. He's absolutely brilliant, and, and people have been literally waiting for him to publish this book for decades. He's been writing about Demetrius for a very long time. And I, I've heard really great things about Charlotte as well, who is, in turn, one of Pat's old students. Uh, this book promises, from what I've seen, to be really amazing. And the reason why I think it's so important and why I'd go so far as to, to list it, even though it's not out yet and I haven't read it, is because Demetrius, in many ways, encapsulates everything that is important about Hellenistic kingship. He didn't fight alongside Alexander. He diverged rapidly in iconographical terms. And it is primarily by virtue of his own personal charisma and military skill that he cements his own legitimacy and with it his, his legacy. Reading a biography of Demetrius will also sort of serve to introduce you to the Hellenistic narrative and the key figures within it, but it'll, it'll really give a masterclass in the life of one of history's most entertaining characters. I, I, do, I do have to note, actually, uh, to be fair, both of these books can be rather expensive. Uh, the Demetrius biography is being published by Oxford, I think, and so, you know, it's a 50-50 cost. You're going to need a small mortgage to buy it. But if you can get access to either of those two books, 
uh, in ebook form or through a, a local library or university library, definitely do so. Um, and finally, I'd also recommend keeping an eye out for anything written by professors uh, Voldemar Heckel and Andrew Erskine. I'm a big fan of theirs. Uh, Paul Cosman as well. They're all great scholars with a, a really engaging writing style. They've written extensively on uh, the life of Alexander and the history of the Hellenistic period. On that note, I believe this is a great place to conclude our discussion. And once again, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the podcast. If people wanted to find out more about your work, is there anything you would like to plug? Are there any upcoming projects coming down the pipeline? So I've got a few articles uh, in, in the proverbial pipeline about uh, Plutarch's characterization of Pyrrhus the Molossian. I've got a paper being written on the royal dress and insignia of Demetrius Podolkites, which I've been working on for what feels like a lifetime. Uh, and I'm also writing about the strategic decision-making in the Roman Seleucid War. All of these have unfortunately been slowed down a bit by the current pandemic, uh, but hopefully things will get back to normal soon and they'll be out in the wild for people to read in the next year or two the vagaries of academic publishing permitting. Um, I'll also be updating my academia.edu and Twitter pages with articles and my honours and master's theses over the summer, which anyone can access and download should they desire. But um, thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun and best of luck with the show going forward. Fantastic. So I will make sure to include a link to John's Academia page and Twitter account in both the podcast description and the show notes on my website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com if any listeners wanted to dig further into your work. So until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.